thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm Senior Vice President and CMO for Population Health. Um, I have a friend and colleague with me today, uh, our Senior Director for Behavioral Health and, and Population Health, uh, Dr. Anita Iyer. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Um, so Anita, it's, it's not been quite a year. I remember you started uh, right as the pandemic was starting and we all went to remote work. So you had the distinct pleasure of having like literally, I think one day in person, is that maybe two days, including one day in person, one, one day in person and then went to remote, but uh, been uh, amazing on the team. I was wondering if you might introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about how you landed at, at Sinai in the middle of a pandemic. Sure. Um, <laughs> So I am a native New Yorker um, in that I've been in New York since I was 12 years old. Um, but I would say that New York City has really sort of made me who I am in a lot of ways in terms of how I understand myself and my place in the world. Hmm. Um, I grew up before that in India um, as an only child to both my, my parents are both uh, bankers. And so moved around a bit as a child. Um, and, and I bring that up as part of my journey because it sort of um, I had to learn to adapt sort of as a kid and it made me um, really sort of connect with difficult situations that people experience and, and how hard it is to have to constantly have to adapt. I hated that experience as a mm-hmm. kid. And, um, New York is really the only city that I've lived in consistently. Um, and so, you know, that really um, informs in a lot of ways my approach to to my work, to life, to um, professional goals, personal goals, with an eye towards sort of stability and wanting things to be um, as peaceful and as grounded as possible. Um, And I look for that in myself. I look for that in my patients. I look for that in programs that I design and promote. Um, in sort of making sure they will fit people's needs and will promote a sense of stability and a feeling of being grounded. Um, with all that, you know, I sort of, I did all my schooling in New York, uh, went to college at Barnard College um, uptown in Morningside um, Heights. And then I did graduate school as well at Columbia, a um, couple of master's degrees, and then sort of a PhD in clinical psychology, kind of fell upon that by accident, if you will. I I never took a single psychology course in college um, and was a biology major and an anthropology minor and was sort of looking for something that would be in between and psychology felt like a a good fit. And I'm happy with that decision now looking back at it, Um, you know, and then started practicing um, in, in settings like through training years in hospital settings in New York City, mostly public hospitals um, or even private hospitals that have a large Um, inner city population that they Uh serve, um, really started to understand and work with complex trauma, uh, kept presenting itself. And that really became my area of interest. Um, And again, I think it resonated with me in that sense of people like getting pulled and pushed in different circumstances in life and getting hurt and not having those stable, those feelings of being grounded. I think that really connects me to the work I do. Um, And um, I decided I really wanted to learn more about that and pursued a postdoctoral fellowship at the VA in Long Beach, California, um, oh, focused on uh, treating sexual trauma in the military, um, particularly among female service members. Um, again, you know, in addition to learning about how to treat complex sexual trauma, I really walked away from that experience 
learning how to support people's complex needs, um, including, you know, current needs with housing and, you know, an appreciation for how current sort of concrete circumstances impact a person's ability to live well and, and live a predictable, stable kind of life. Um, and, you know, all of this sort of, I began to develop a sense of the whole person, right? Um, and and um, took that into my next role within the VA system, developed some programs for outpatient mental health at the VA in Northport in Suffolk County in New York. Mm-hmm. Did that for a couple of years. Um, and then um, this opportunity sort of landed on my lap um, to run behavioral health technology and provide sort of clinical um grounding and infrastructure for a behavioral health technology program for a company. At the time, it was called the Mental Health Association of New York City. It's a not-for-profit organization um, based in downtown New York in the financial Mm -hmm. district, but they subsequently rebranded as Vibrant Emotional Health. Um, I grew into various roles in that company, continuing to develop this sense of sort of all of the complex things that happen in a person's life um, that lead them to experience anywhere from sort of routine behavioral health needs, like sometimes you're depressed and sometimes you're not, all the way up to severe psychopathology. Um, And so I appreciated over the years sort of this iterative experience, um, set of experiences rather, um, leading me to where I currently am, which I'm really excited about sort of um, in what we do, taking a population health approach to behavioral health. Um, the opportunity um, was really sort of appealing to me from that lens of um, situating people in their context and developing behavioral health programs and supports that work for people where they are, rather than expecting people to come to where you are um, or meet you where you're at, right? Like meeting patients where they're at um, um, and, and making sure care is accessible to people when and where they need it as opposed to when and where we can provide it. Um, and, and again, sort of in that vein of promoting a stable, peaceful sense of a person's life mm-hmm. um, beyond pathology, beyond conditions, beyond treatment and dis- diagnosis and disease, um, instead focusing on sort of health and prevention. So that's that's really sort of a long-winded way of um, describing, you know, that the, the through point, if you will, from where I started right. to where I am. I imagine some of the goals that you just highlighted or, or the one big goal in terms of how you view the, the pop health piece of this are probably not radically different than the goals you might've had it or the vision for this that you had at Vibrant, right? So I'm curious about how you see the, it, I, I'm, again, assuming that that's true, how is it the same or different in terms of what you're thinking of? Here at yeah, you know, um, in my role at Vibrant, you know, um, a lot of the programs that we ran were public facing free programs that were funded by various government bodies, right? City or state or, you know, some federal programs. There were a few private sort of concierge like programs that were developed by employer groups um, and such. But, you know, the broad takeaway was, um, you know, as I said before, how large the circumstances in people's lives are in terms of what they experience and what their ability is to access care. So insurance, um, how much of a barrier that is, not having money to get to an appointment, how much of a barrier that is. Um, 
not having access to good food and how much of a barrier that is and right. sort of how um, those elements of a person's life along with complex trauma, along with early childhood experiences, along with current losses like job loss or you know, divorce in their life or the loss of a loved one, you know, whatever it may be, um, how all of those factors sort of compound in creating whatever it is the person is currently presenting with, that sort of became pretty clear to me over my work at Vibrant, right? Mm -hmm. That like, if you want to develop, provide something to a person that they can take and work with, it has to address, it has to be multi-pronged. It has right. to address everything. You can't right. just tell them, do some deep breathing and you won't feel anxious anymore, <laughs> right? right. Um, well, I'm still going to be, you know, Grossly without a job inadequate. after I'm done deep breathing, right? Yeah, right, like right. what am I going to do about that? So right. that was a, a really key takeaway. I mean, all the way through to suicide prevention, right? I mean, we did a lot of work at Vibrant on crisis management and suicide prevention because a lot of the programs we ran were hotlines, um, places that people would call where no one else was available, right. um, sometimes in the middle of the night and such. And, you know, you mitigate the current suicidal crisis, you mitigate the current crisis, but you still have to equip um, the person with some sense of what do I do next? How do I address the concrete stressors that will persist once this moment of suicidality passes? So um, everything I've, I've learned to do over the last few years has been sort of a, a growing emphasis on um, the whole person. And so I, I see that very directly related to what we do. Um, at Sinai now, right? Um, including in the multidisciplinary team that we work with, where all these aspects are separately, but in a related fashion addressed um, with emphasis toward prevention and whole person care. So that that's really, um, that's really a key piece of, I think, the way forward for behavioral health. And I'm glad we're doing that. I imagine, again, this is a perhaps an assumption that may not be correct, but in, in this current role, uh, as some of the folks that are listening already know, we have 4,000 physicians across the network, independent and employed, all with their own broad cultures and, and uh, themes associated with those groups being an independent doc versus an employed physician, but also the microculture within each practice, right? Um, I, I don't know how much interaction you had with physicians that are referring or also caring for the physical aspects of, of a lot probably I imagine many shared patients. Um, is that a difference in this new world that that interaction? Cause I know a lot of the things that you're planning have to do with that interface of medical physicians and, and then, and behavioral health. And I don't know how much of that you have done in the past. Yeah. You know, that, that was actually um, something that really drew me to the role, the potential to interface with, the people who have the capacity to make these um, meaningful sort of changes um, on behalf, like encourage meaningful change anyway with mm -hmm. patients, right? Um, I haven't done a whole bunch of that in the past. Um, you know, that's the short answer. I mean, I've collaborated and working with multidisciplinary yeah, clinical teams, but really exciting to be able to work with primary care physicians, right? Um, the sounds um, of the city in the background here. Yeah. Um, Primary care physicians, I think, you know, being the number one prescribers of depression medication mm -hmm. as well as anti-anxiety medications, I mean, that tells us something. It tells us Absolutely. that people trust their primary care physicians more often than not to reach out to their primary care physicians probably first before they go to a specialist, right. uh, which is kind of what we would want them to do. And yeah, so sure. if those relationships exist and can be leveraged um, to have these conversations and to situate 
the patient's behavioral health needs into that whole person conceptualization, I think that's a win-win, right? Like um, if, we can, if we can impart messages around prevention and taking care of yourself to patients, if we can equip clinicians to situate the patient's need around all of the other concrete circumstances in their lives, and if we can help clinicians and physicians think about um, if, is this person able to do all the things I'm asking them to do to take care of their health needs if they are depressed and that depression is not being addressed? I think those connections are key um, um, in all parties, right? And so, um, and then primary care physicians who have that appreciation for behavioral health needs likely will impart those messages to their patients. And, and then it's an iterative um, process from there. So I, I'm really excited to work with the primary care physicians in our, in our um, clinically integrated network, um, have had a few conversations um, and have been really encouraged by them. The, you know, we, part of our main hypothesis and, and it's supported by some, some studies. So some fact-based as well, not just, um, not just theory here, but uh, is that in order for us to be successful in really transforming the model of how healthcare is delivered in the city specifically, um, and and actually to achieve our, our goals on the value side, we need to have a, um, very strong relationships with primary care, and in and not just any relationship, but or not just any primary care physician, but an empowered primary care physician mm-hmm. in terms of knowledge and and fact base. And for those of you that don't know, you New York is um, it's an odd place to do this kind of work in that it is exceedingly subspecialty driven um in there it's very different from when i was in north carolina where the primary care relationships were were really keen um that that's not necessarily the default state for the average patient in in new york city in fact we see our uh, ratios of primary care to specialty care be about half um where it was often two or three to one in in north carolina um how have you found the readiness of the primary care physicians to, to take behavior health issues on so far? I mean, I know there's, there's certainly a desire, it feels like, um, and, mm-hmm. and interest, but um, where do you see the gaps so far? You know, I think um, desire and interest, certainly. You know, we, 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 every time we've put out calls for folks to join um, work groups to discuss what they experience on the ground and what they need people have showed up, right, which is encouraging. Readiness, I think, varies um, um, based on, you know, perhaps the infrastructure they have in place, Mm -hmm. um, uh, how, you know, how large their practices are, how much capacity they have to take on new ways of doing things. Um, You know, uh, there are a few ideas we, we have, we've been batting around, around sort of, you know, uh, ways to improve triage um, for behavioral health conditions, ways to um, support the clinician with some sort of integrated care models. Um, so there's eagerness and interest in that. Readiness varies, right? Practices vary mm-hmm. in terms of their capacity to put these sorts of things in place. Um, but I'm pretty convinced that we can find a solution that can adapt itself to different practices um, as well. Um, I think there's definitely interest in learning more. Um, and and readiness to learn more. So as I said, folks have showed up when we've put the conversations out there um, and we have some ideas for um, ongoing training models um, for for physicians, which I'm pretty hopeful um, will have good participation. Um, 
And so I, I wouldn't be doubtful about the readiness to learn. And I do think that's a critical piece of it, the ongoing learning right. about behavioral health conditions, how to conceptualize them, how to triage them, where are the places that you can connect patients to. And if you want to treat them on your own, what are the strategies for that, both psychotherapy yep. as well as medication? Uh, do you mind mentioning a little bit about what uh, you're thinking about in terms of that training and education and in terms of the, the model or yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we are looking at implementing uh, a project ECHO model um, for behavioral health um, with a behavioral health curriculum um, for our primary care physicians, um, you know, putting an open call out essentially for participants across our network. Um, all the different stripes of primary care practices that we have would be welcome. Um, we are in the process of, um, well, we have a rough curriculum developed. We're in the process of, um, you know, kind of getting ourselves up to speed on some of the strategies around the ECHO model. And there are some sort of guidelines that the ECHO Institute puts out. We want to make sure that we adhere to those um, uh, and, and, you know, sort of dot all our I's and cross all our T's with that so that we can really develop and deliver an efficient and effective um, ECHO model that, that physicians that participate in it would really find useful. What's really attractive about the ECHO model rather than just sort of recording webinars and sending those out, mm -hmm. is that it, it's really derived from this idea of the value of case-based um, discussions and case-based yep. rounds. Um, so we want to put in place um, a space where on a routine, regular, predictable basis, our physicians would be able to join, um, pr either present a case and or participate in providing support um, for a case pertaining to a behavioral health need that presented in their practice. And then there would be an associated um, element of that session that's didactic related mm -hmm. to the topic at hand. And we try to pick cases and discussion topics as well as didactics that would kind of hold together in terms of a particular behavioral health topic area. Um, so for example, you know, um, SSRI withdrawal, if that's a topic that we think through, you know, we'd have a case and a didactic to go with it. Um, right. We're planning to build on it. You know, we have very modest kind of, you know, six month to one year plan, and then hopefully we can um, you know, come up with sort of a curriculum that can sustain itself over time, as well as ideally some sort of modular um, uh, options as well, where maybe we have a track that specializes in cases around pediatric needs, cases around substance use and so on. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, we're real excited to get that going. Um, that is, you know, that's, it's going to be a challenge for all of us. We're looking about we're looking at all of our different strategies for how we uh, empower primary care physicians in all sorts of areas and, and scaling this up has been an issue. I'm, I'm excited about getting started with behavioral health is such a dramatic need. And I think it's, it's, it's a particularly dramatic need these days. I think not to be, um, I want to talk about this a little bit. So as not to be tone deaf in terms of the context that we're in right now of COVID and how that's, We've saw early March, April, the impact of COVID. I mean, in your first weeks on the job, um, hearing about the the flags from our care managers that we're seeing a lot more in terms of suicidality, uh, anxiety, and stress in the midst of the pandemic. I was wondering if you might comment a little bit about your perspectives on that, and um, and perhaps how in the way we're thinking about telemedicine for all sorts of you know physical conditions and reimagining that. How, how you see that affecting the future treatment of behavioral health, um, mm. either virtual or otherwise. Yeah. That's a lot, but uh, if, if yeah. I'm interested in your perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'll talk about the COVID thing first, the COVID piece first. Mm -hmm. You know, I think COVID has sort of ripped the blanket off of 
um, off of so many things, I think, mm -hmm. in our healthcare system and inequities and our all the places where we fall short, right, as a, as a system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think behavioral health is no exception, right? So um, last I looked, so CDC has done these monthly um, household pulse surveys, um, just stress scales that look at sort of how much depression and anxiety folks are feeling, very large sample sizes as they tend to have. Um, as of September, which is I think the last time that I looked and saw some data on it, um, there's a threefold increase, right, in household um, reports of anxiety and depression. Um, usually the amount is around eight, nine percent or six, seven percent for anxiety. Um, and it's now about 33 percent. Right. So it's prevalence rates are significant and, and it should be alarming to us. And there are subpopulations where you see this particularly bear out. Right. So people who have financial distress report significantly greater levels of anxiety and depression currently, as you would expect them to. Right. Um, mm -hmm. People who have um, young children report significantly greater anxiety and depression um, and stress than um, non-parents, as you would expect them to, if you look at all the ways in which household structures have been completely turned upside down um, as best as people are trying to cope. So I think um, you know, it, has, it has exposed um, how vulnerable people are um, underneath, right. you know, no matter how well they are, they're they're sort of faking it until they make it, if you will. Right. Um, and and I think it it really underscores what we have to do as a healthcare system to be attentive to these things um, up front and in a proactive manner, as opposed to waiting for the issues to kind of come to us. As I said before, right. So we know that significant distress around financial needs or um, feelings of isolation, lack of ability to connect with people, all that has played out because of needs to socially distance and such, we know that those tend to be correlated with increases in suicidality, right? We know that the US is one of the few developed countries that has an increase in suicide rates um, when compared to the mm. rest of our, you know, peers from wealthy nations. Um, and before in, COVID. Know, even before COVID, yeah. exactly. You know, before yeah. COVID, we saw a 30% increase year over year in our rates wow. of suicidality, you know, and, and, um, I mean, that's not going to change. If anything, we should expect that given the levels of depression and anxiety sure. we're seeing now that it would be compounded. And so planning for that ahead um, in the ways that we outreach and support patients, making sure we are screening, making sure we're not, you know, um, focused on barriers to universal screening and are instead focused on solutions to it um, is key um, to getting proactive about these issues and addressing them. Because if mm -hmm. we don't take the time to find out how our patients are doing, in terms of depression and anxiety and other behavioral health conditions, we can't um, strategize around treating them. Um, and I know we engaged in some efforts in the immediate aftermath to sort of include um, questions around emotional functioning in, in our outreach efforts, right? And so, Absolutely. Yeah. you know, so making that front and center, I think is key. Um, with respect to telehealth and telemedicine, you know, I can speak to that sort of from the angle of access, right? So COVID has also exposed um, that you know, we have to be creative and brick and mortar sort of approaches don't, are not enough. It's not that they don't work, but they're insufficient. Um, you know, if people are afraid to come into the doctor's office, doesn't mean they don't need care still. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, I mean, I've always been a, a big proponent of leveraging technology to provide behavioral health care. Not that it's a panacea, you know, not that it solves sure. everything. Sure. Um, and there are, you know, important things to consider, but I think it's more applicable than it's not. And I think that is the position to start from. I think when we start, and historically, our, our healthcare system um, has started from a place of it doesn't apply to as many people as it does apply to, mm -hmm. meaning providing 
care mm-hmm. through technology platforms. Right. I think that always puts us one step back, right? right, right. Um, as opposed to if we started with an assumption that it should work for most, what are the people that it wouldn't work for? And then how can we solution that? Sure. Um, I've seen people save people's lives um, through a telephone conversation or through a text interaction in, mm-hmm. in some of the hotline work that I've overseen. So I know that really deep, meaningful, change-inducing conversations can be delivered over technology. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, te- telehealth has rapidly scaled. I see all my patients via telehealth, you know, it mm-hmm. works well. Um, there are certainly kinks that we need to, to work out. Um, but if we are going to come through on our promise to improve access to care, it's an essential component. Yeah. Um, it sort of feels like, you know, the, the 80 to 20 rule often applies, right? And, and it feels like this sort of essentially what you're saying is that probably most of the time it, we, we can do this. We can actually make meaningful impacts using this technology. And yeah, it's, it is so true how often we end up landing on the exception and getting stuck on the ex- exception and, and, and not the 80 uh, percent. So uh, excited to hear about what, what we're developing internally and, and to get us there. But I'd actually like to go back to their first half of those comments in terms of, um, you know, identifying folks that, I mean, seeing or hearing about the statistics on suicidality implies that, well, it implies lots of things in terms of access, in terms of stressors, environmental, societal, and otherwise, you know, probably implies some things about levels of trauma and other things in our society. But from, from a physician perspective, I, I know that we have both, um, heard and often hear that, you know, I don't need to screen or assess for depression or anxiety. My patients aren't depressed or anxious. I know mm-hmm. because I know them. Um, I was wondering as, as we we're, uh, I think, closing up on the conversation, because I think this is a really important point and message that we want to get across of to our physicians and other stakeholders across, not just in our network, but across all the, the listening audience about how important it might be to identify folks further upstream because it, gosh, it feels yeah. like we're, we're losing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and having a strategy that's proactive um, mm-hmm. and, and intentional, um, I think, to identify people upstream. I, you know, I want to believe that every primary care physician is well-intentioned and wants to, right, um, mm-hmm. wants to know if their patient is depressed mm-hmm. or anxious um, at a debilitating enough level that they would consider taking their own life. Right. right. Um, um, and, and that, you know, that they want to know that before the patient gets to that point of crisis um, and that, you know, that there is an understanding that in order to get to that patient before they're in a state of crisis, you want to engage in routine screening before you see symptoms. Right. Like just ask regularly, do the screenings that are recommended by various bodies. Right. Like right. World Health Organization, CDC and so on. Um, routinely and your annual visits, follow-up visits and whatnot, so that you're talking to the patient before um, they are thinking about, they're at a point where they're thinking about taking their life. Um, I think there, there are barriers to that. Um, you know, I think not knowing what to do when a patient screens positive for se- severe depression, let's mm-hmm. say, um, it makes perhaps the physician feel so helpless that they don't know what to do in that moment that you know, it's feasible that the physician avoids the screening to avoid that feeling of helplessness or feeling like, I don't know what to do for you right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel guilty about that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting a bit, but 
Um, I imagine it's those sorts of pieces that we have to unravel and unpack to get um, physicians in our network to embrace universal screening. Mm-hmm. Um, because without that intentional proactive approach, we're not going to catch as many people upstream as we want to. Um, and I think protocolizing that, making that routine, making that expected, along with making it acceptable to physicians, I think is important mm-hmm. because we need their buy-in. We need them to understand that you know, screening people who then screen positive for depression isn't a nuisance. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an important, almost a gift that you get in that moment because I'm sure the physician would much rather not find out the patient died because they had untreated depression that could have been prevented. Yeah. That's a powerful closing line. So maybe we'll, we'll close it there. Is that, I think it's an, an important message for folks to hear. Um, Anita, thank you for your time as always and your work. I'm excited about what we're going to, what you're going to do on this team and, and uh, for our patients. So I appreciate your time and dedication. Thank you so much. Sure thing. If, and if folks have uh, ideas for future podcasts, podcasts, excuse me, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks a lot. Thank you.